The Behavioral Corner is produced in cooperation with Retreat Behavioral Health, where healing happens. Hi and welcome, I'm Steve Martorano and this is The Behavioral Corner. You're invited to hang with us as we discuss the ways we live today, the choices we make, the things we do, and how they affect our health and well-being. So you're on the corner, the behavioral corner. Please hang around a while. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the behavioral corner. Me again, uh, hanging here, waiting for interesting people to cross our paths. We picked a great spot. We got very lucky. This is the most, this is the intersection of like really interesting people and me full of like dumb questions. Anyway, it's the behavioral corner. We talk about everything because that's what affects our behavioral health. It's uh, made possible by our great underwriting partners, Retreat Behavioral Health. You'll find out more about them later. We're uh, welcoming back to the program, uh, no stranger to the corner. Erin Riley has been with us um, in the recent past. She joined us then to tell us a story that I'll tell you right now, uh, gained a lot of interest on our podcast site because I think it is a, a bigger story or a more widely shared story than most people are willing to admit. And it has to do with an awful, awful a 20-year relationship, marriage to a narcissist, which is a, a concept much in the news lately. So Aaron was kind enough to be really candid with us about that and told us that story. It's uh, an amazing story, not a pretty one, I might add. So we welcome her back now on the occasion of another box she has checked off on her illustrious kind of showbiz or entertainment career, and that is her first book, Hi, Erin. Show the book. It's called A Dark Force. Hello, Steve. Here it is. This is, is called a uh, not for resale copy. You can see the little bar across it. This is the first printed copy. <laughs> not for resale. That's like the records we used to get in the music business, right? Yeah. For promotional use only. You mean the one we sold all the time? Exactly. The ones we yeah. just stole immediately. Yeah, right. Anyway, it's called A Dark Force, 20 years with a covert narcissist. We congratulate Erin on the book and we welcome her back to the program. You look terrific, kiddo. I'm glad. And I, and I only say that because you, your comment about me looking like I'm not half dead was kind, and I wanted to return it in favor. I get in a lot of trouble when I uh, I comment on the way anybody looks, so I have to be careful about <laughs> all of I know, I know you. You know you don't care. Anyway, um, uh, the book is a great read. We'll briefly discuss what goes on there, but it would be my wish, and Aaron's as well, that you buy this book. Available on Amazon right when, and you can buy it a pre-sale right now, right, Erin? Yes, that's correct. Uh, right now, you can pre-order the ebook, which is to be delivered to e-readers and iPads and things like that, up until December 6th, and that's the official release date. That's the day that you can purchase a paperback online and that all of the ebooks will be delivered to the e-readers and the purchasers. I'll be also recording an audio version next month that will be available in January. Oh, cool. Yeah. So it's a, it's a real deal. It's a real book. She's got it right there in her hands. And nothing impresses me more than published <laughs> authors. I, I I really have a lot of respect for anybody that has the um, uh, a story to tell and the willingness to sit down there and get it on, you know, in this case, a computer screen. But let's begin there, okay? Because I want people to find out your story from reading your book. We'll, we'll delve into a little bit of it. But why did you write this book, Erin? I wrote this book, Steve, to figure out how did I get here? Like, how did I get uh, spend 20 years in a in a marriage, in a relationship with someone who couldn't see me or hear me or 
uh, make me feel validated? And why did I keep trying? What was it about me? You know, it can't just be that he's awful and I stay because I feel sorry for him and I don't want to hurt him. You know, where am I in this equation? It's not all about him. I have to look in the mirror and say, you know, what happened to Aaron here? So I started journaling and uh, and it just keep it kind of grew from there. Uh, and as I continued to write and I had a few people read things I was writing and give me some good positive feedback and some direction about where to take it and things that they'd want to see and learn about about how uh, how a person somehow maybe gets involved with somebody like this. Yeah. Uh, so that's why I figure it out. Figure out the me part of it. Did you journal as a young girl growing up? Did you keep a diary or any any of that? Oh, a little bit until my brother found it and then no. Right. That's usually the yeah. case. Yes. Now, I, I just want to spend some time talking about your process and, and writing. There is something very different about committing your thoughts and your experiences in writing form because inherent in that is the notion that somebody's going to read this. I want someone to read this. I mean, you can have that discussion in your head and that's as far as it's going to go. You'll have it with yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's good. That's, that's fine. But it takes a certain amount of audacity. And I admire it to write something and go, I think people will read this. It's your hope that people read this, correct? Obviously. Of course, and are helped by it. But, you know, narcissism, as we've talked about before, exists on a spectrum, and there is healthy narcissism. You know, so writing a book is, I think, healthy narcissism. Yes, obviously, I have to have enough confidence in my ability to tell a story to tell it publicly. You know, so that's uh, hopefully what would be considered healthy narcissism. So you consider the book not only in a, a an effort to tell your story and share it with others, but also as a kind of therapeutic exercise for you as well, right? Absolutely. I joke around sometimes, Steve, and say, I hope that someone who is in need of this book, it comes into their world, they start reading it, they recognize their own self in it, and they put it down and run. And they never even finish it. But I saved somebody (laughs) because they see themselves in it. Because what I've learned about... um, People who get involved in narcissistic uh, and controlling course of relationships is that there's so much uh, commonality in the behaviors and the things that are said and the experiences and feelings that while there isn't a uh, blood test or uh, a CAT scan that can confirm narcissism in a person, the list of behaviors and things that are said are common throughout. And that's the way that us folks who have experienced it have gathered together from our experiences and shared that. So that's what the book is about, sharing my very intimate experiences with uh, this type of a person. And I hope that people will recognize that this is only going to a very bad place. It just gets a lot worse over time. Yeah, that universal universal, uh, profile of a uh, toxic narcissist is startling. You have a great description in your book of, of meeting your husband's first wife, I suppose. Her yes. marriage crashed as well, of course. And you two were strangers to one another. All you had in common was this man. And when you began comparing notes, it didn't take very long at all for you to be actually, both of you, startled at how similar your experience was. Um, he led me to believe that she was crazy. And that's one of those common things that narcissists will say about their former partners to the new 
partner, new supply. Uh, oh, my ex was crazy. I did everything I could to make her happy. I just couldn't make her happy. You know, she's and all kinds of things. And and really, they kind of drive you crazy with their little uh, games and and uh, avoidance and uh, cruelties, cheating. You know, I could just go on and on with the things that they do. But yes, when I realized that maybe perhaps she wasn't crazy, I contacted her after he left. And, uh, and we spent four and a half hours on our first lunch together, just sharing stories and, and validating each other. It was really a very, very healing thing. It's interesting when you talk about, you know, narcissism being kind of, uh, there's a spectrum of it. And I agree with that. In writing the book, did you hope that perhaps people who are kind of toxic on the narcissism side can get something out of this? I guess what I'm saying is, can men read your book and get anything from it? Well, first of all, I sure hope so. Not all narcissists are men. Mm-hmm. Not even close. Not even close. Yeah, but guys get all the ink for some reason. I mean, I get it, but I hear you. Go ahead. Um, let me speak just a little bit about, I joined several different groups online on Facebook, private groups uh, mm-hmm. about narcissistic abuse recovery and also on Instagram. I would like to just say that I have an Instagram for the book that I have about 800 followers and it's become quite a community for myself already. We all share together our experiences and it's really very validating. My point was, and I uh, thank you for leading me back there, Steve, mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. that there are plenty of men in these groups as well, too, that talk about their uh, the women in their lives that have uh, really flipped them upside down. Uh, so, yes, uh, maybe more so men. Yes, I would hope everybody could get something out of the book. But uh, with regard to someone who is on the high level of narcissistic personality disorder or traits or is actually a diagnosed narcissist, they're not going to get much out of it. They're mm-hmm. not going to want to read it. They're not going to want to look at themselves. That's their MO. That's how they live. Everything is projected externally. They get all, you know, they s- sort of suck life from other people and they push people down to where their level is. Like they have deep self-loathing. You wouldn't see that on the outside, but they're deep self-loathing. So if they bring you down, they come up a little bit. Yeah. That's about themselves. It's in learning about not only from your your book and your experience, but others that I've spoken to on the on the topic. I come away with it thinking that on some level, uh, narcissism is a survival mechanism that these people weaponize a normal self love, which is not only normal but healthy, and they weaponize it. And I'm and I'm thinking not to be overtly cruel but because I think they think they have to behave this way. Did you observe that in your husband? Do you think he had no control over his behavior? Very much so. I think that is really a great point you're making, Steve, because something early on in a narcissist causes what they call a narcissistic injury. Something is going to cause them to turn. And when I say turn, they're going to turn uh, to believe that Everyone is the same and we're all out to be number one. So we're all out to take advantage of each other. And so I'm going to get you before you get me. Mm-hmm. And it is about, you know, they're protecting themselves because they're so, they're so worried that they'll be taken down. They are easy to recognize, though. As you said, there's a, there's a very distinctive type and they all share it. Um, it's it's not even close. I mean, I don't think people spend much time until it's too late going, gee, well, I don't understand why I didn't recognize that. There are some pretty brilliant red flags about this behavior. Um, 
Let's talk about the way forward. One of the things I think people who haven't experienced something like this wonder is, why does it take 20 years to extricate yourself from this? Well, narcissists, you know, um, they have these uh, needs. Codependent people and narcissists are dependent upon each other. So it will take 20 years because they don't want to lose that supply. It's a lot of work to get some new supply for you if you need somebody else that you're dependent on for your, you know, to reflect yourself back to. Um, They also, uh, it happens over time slowly. All narcissists start with something they call love bombing. They identify a target. They sweep you off your feet. Uh, There's trips and gifts and flowers and compliments. And they keep that negative behavior to themselves until they are sure they've got you wrapped up, however that is. And that's wrapped up as married, living together, financially, you know, joined Mm -hmm. or whatever it is where you're actually it is. You can't just get away. You can't just say, I'm out of here. There's something you'll have to unravel. So it makes it harder. And it makes that person who has been targeted as the new supply um, feel as though like they're getting all this attention, they're feeling seen, and this person is doing all these wonderful things for them, not realizing that there's uh, an ulterior motive or a motivation that is is not healthy behind it. Uh, Aaron's book is called A Dark Force, 20 Years with a Covert Narcissist. It is nothing if not a cautionary tale. You just mentioned something that's, uh, you know, we have this image of when you're married, two become one. And that's certainly true, but more in a sense of two become partners. They're still two people. You look back and go, the intermingling of every aspect of our relationship wound up hurting the hell out of me. Because he was doing it for different reasons than I was doing it. And your finances, once they get commingled, really hurt you. We won't go into all the details. Mm-hmm. Would you advise people, women anyway, or men too, to keep some independence, even though you're in this uh, union, when, no matter how in love you are? Do you yes. agree? Always. There are certainly going to, narcissists going to take control of everything they possibly can. My my husband would rarely let me drive the car. He couldn't be out of control of the wheel of the car. If he had to sit in the passenger seat, he'd be holding on to the, you know, the uh, handle here and pumping the false brakes and panicking and shoot me dirty looks. Um, meanwhile, while he's at the wheel, he's road raging and driving up, you know, like on top of somebody and with his chin on the steering wheel at night because he can't see, but God forbid I, you know, look at him. He had to push the shopping cart. He had to manage the finances. He made all the decisions about where we went on vacation. And the problem was, is that I took that as love and caring, like he wanted to take care of me because my needs were, I'd been so independent my whole life. I wanted someone to take care of me. You know, my parents didn't take such great care of me. And that's a very important aspect of the book is it doesn't start the day you meet a narcissist. It starts, you know, as you're being raised and program to accept certain types of behaviors and have certain uh, uh, self-image, uh, a self-image of yourself. So yes, I was always very independent and I wanted this man to like do it all for me so I could feel loved and cared for uh, something I should have had internally from my family unit. So, so it sounds like you're saying that you take a certain responsibility uh, for having uh been victimized by this. In other words, you were you were uh, at a very early age 
sort of conditioned to be that kind of a person, right? That is correct. I am. Um, I, I in the book, I give myself fifty percent responsibility. There are two people. Takes two to tango. Whatever you know, mm-hmm. I have just as much to unravel as he does, and uh, I, I think I've done it. I think I've done a really good job uh, by my own self uh, to connect with. Um, maybe who I really am inside without all of the uh, the clouds of my childhood and any other uh, things I suffered through in my life. Everyone has their issues that they suffer, you know, within mm-hmm. life. Um, but really, I find that there is um, a huge difference with people that have a very good, strong family unit that help them learn how to process traumas. You know, trauma happens to everybody. Bad experiences and losses happen to everyone. If you have someone as a child to help you process trauma, it's a lot healthier for you in the long run. Otherwise, you become like me and you look externally for others to help you process your emotions. Yeah, someone once told me it's never too late to have a happy childhood. And I I kind of agree with that. So let's talk about now the, you know, the road back. It's in your book. You're very clear about, and you've mentioned it here, but where have you gained um, the kind of support you think people need who who wind up in these situations? The most important um, thing to start with for me was learning. I had to learn. I had so much to learn. I had to learn about narcissism. I had to learn about my uh, codependency. I had to really examine my childhood and my family and how I felt about everything, you know, growing up and how I perceived my uh, sort of like place in the family. Then I needed to really examine my husband's family and his upbringing and things he said to me. You know, it's so important to figure out how did these two damaged people come together Mm -hmm. and hurt each other so much? You know, mm-hmm. like he wanted me to heal all of his wounds, that narcissistic injury for him. But he didn't tell me that. He made it seem like he was a prize. Right. And same here. Right. Same here. You know, I'm not out to hurt anybody, but I'm looking for someone to heal the hole in me, which I didn't feel the love as a child. And I was love bombed. So it it was what I felt like I needed. Yeah, but it's yeah, a lot you know, <laughs> it, it's a it's a it's a, a dance for for two that go that goes on all the time, and it goes on in relationships that uh, actually transcend marriage. It goes on in work relationships and and uh, all, all kinds of relationships where we are presenting ourselves as something that we are not because that's the way we think we have to behave. Mm-hmm. Now, I know you recently went off to one of these. Um, there's no other way to describe it. It's a psychedelic ceremony. Around something called uh, ayahuasca. Ayahuasca. Um, you could call it the mother. That's how it's referred to in the community is the yeah. mother. Very briefly, it's a, a very ancient uh, medicinal plant. It's been used in primitive societies in South America for millennia. Uh, and it is gaining a lot of traction among a lot of people. It's illegal. Of course, it's a drug. It's illegal. But it is being administered. You have to go out of the country to do it. Or you can do it here quietly. And it's we're on the cusp, I think, of a kind of revolution in psychiatry. And I've talked to psychiatrists about this. They agree that uh, in the next uh, decade or so, we're going to see a lot of drugs that were considered bad and recreational being opened up to examination to find out how well they work. Tell us about your involvement with the ceremony and what you got out of it. 
Uh, well, let me just start with uh, speaking about learning. In learning about uh, narcissism and codependency, I did find that a lot of people uh, have a theory that people with narcissism have uh, an insular cortex deficit at birth, that they have less capacity for empathy toward others, and they can see that on a CAT scan. So that sort of led me to want to learn more about how to impact your brain and how to change your brain and your thinking. Because once you're into a pattern of thinking, whether that's uh, untreatable depression or alcoholism or ruminating thoughts or just bad behaviors, chronic bad behaviors, it seems like people can't get out of them with all kinds of treatments. So I took it upon myself to learn as much as I could about this. And that's what led me then to the ayahuasca and learning about the default mode network of the brain. And that is six areas of your brain. They're all interconnected and they're all responsible for your sense of self and your ego and whatnot. And they, uh, the little, I guess you want to call them the little synapses that are in your brain and that sort of send messages, electric signals around in your brain. Well, the little synapses are all just focused in that same little pattern going over and over again. And the thing about psychedelics is it's the only thing that makes them go like this. Boom. It interrupts that path. Yes, it does. And they stay that way. They open up. It's almost as if a flower is waiting for rain and it rains and they go like this and they stay that way. Uh, that is exactly the uh, the effect that psychedelic medicine and treatment can have on the brain to help you change your patterns that are destructive. So what do you take away from personally from from your experience with uh, uh, with this ceremony and the drug? Uh, has it stayed with you? Will you do it again? Mm -hmm. All right, well, I'll tell you, there were many great things. The ceremony is beautiful. There's so much beautiful uh, Peruvian music that is a, an aspect of it all. And they're singing to the medicine. You know, the medicine is inside of all the people that are sharing this experience, but they are singing to the medicine and the songs are all different because they're trying to extract different emotions out of people. And people are having a myriad of different experiences. Some people that are in the room with me and I have about 30 or 40 people in the room with me at the time are seeing visions and hallucinations. Some people are falling apart and crying and all that. So there were three ceremonies. I would say that my biggest impact uh, was the very last hour of my last ceremony. This is what happened. And I hope that it's, uh, I hope I can communicate it clearly, but I'm laying on my bed. The effects of the medicine are still in me. It's about two o'clock in the morning. And suddenly I hugged myself and I started like rubbing my shoulders and going, you're still here. Like, I'm still here. No matter, they can't get you. No one can get you. No matter how hard they try, they've been trying your whole life to get you. And you're still here. And I know that sounds a little weird, but that's what stayed with me. That sense of me that maybe I didn't really have. I'm going to cry. <laughs> Don't cry on camera. Um, it was really beautiful. That's the part that stayed. So it wasn't like I had an angel come and talk to me, but that little sense of knowing stuck with me the whole, you know, afterwards and still to today. Yeah, I know you didn't want to uh, present yourself as an advocate for this stuff, and I appreciate that. Didn't expect it. But we've done a, a couple of shows about uh, psychedelics, psychiatry, because we want to become real clear for people who listen to the podcast that there are ways to explore this stuff and there are, there are ways to avoid this because it's you, you got to be careful with uh, with some of this stuff. And and listen, the establishment, farm, big farm, pharmaceuticals and the government are all sort of going, you know what, we're going to have to go back and readdress some of this stuff. 
and see that it's safe and then open it up for therapeutic use. Because I agree with you. I think there's great potential here. Aaron, I want to wish you great luck with the book, A Dark Force, 20 Years with a Covert Narcissist. I have uh, raced through it overnight. You sent me a copy and uh, it's a rip roaring read. It's not the feel good book of the holiday season, but it is absolutely worth reading for a lot of reasons. Even if you don't have these problems, it's a compelling story. So congratulations, kiddo. Thank you, Steve. I hope people find it also entertaining. I tried to make it light. I added a lot of cool rock and roll. Well, you had a great, no, you also, you had, you have a great, you have a great career. You know, it's a heavy topic, but if you can't laugh about the hard things in life, then you know, look, life is hard enough. You have to kind of find the light in things. And so I hope that there's uh, there's a lot to laugh about and smile about and a rejoicing kind of an end as well. Yeah, read it only for the story about uh, about Keith Richards and the exploding uh, exploding microwave. What was it, it, a microwave? <laughs> it was actually a stove. It was oh, okay. a stove. Yeah, no, that's, that's right. That's right. That's right. You blew up the stove. Anyway, great stuff. And uh, good luck with the book. You know, when we get back uh, to this topic of um, psychedelics, maybe we'll have you on our panel. We want to put together a panel, see if we can talk about it. Uh, be happy to, Steve. Thank you. And I just, if you want to talk about psychedelics, let me just mention uh, Michael Pollan, the author, has a series yeah. on Netflix. So mm-hmm. well worth watching and very clear. Talks about all the different psychedelics, their history and their impact. So Michael yeah, Pollan. Yeah, he's really he's really uh, one of the better ones that, that has written and talked about this stuff. Thanks, Aaron, and we'll see you again soon. Have have a great uh, you know holidays going forward. We'll we'll uh, we hope to talk to you soon. Thank you, Steve. Take care. And you guys as well. Don't forget the deal is um, yeah, we like it when you like us and we love it when you follow us. But if you push the subscription button, you have our eternal gratitude. So we'll see you next time on the Behavioral Corner. Take care. Retreat Behavioral Health has proudly been serving the community for over 10 years. Here at Retreat, we believe in the power of connection and quality care. We offer comprehensive, holistic, and compassionate treatment from industry-leading experts. Call 855-802-6600 or visit us at www.retreatbehavioralhealth.com to begin your journey today. That's it for now. And make us a habit, hanging out at the Behavioral Corner. And when we're not hanging, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. On the Behavioral Corner.